You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So Matthew, the gospel writer, begins this great commission in verse 16, and he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Let let me catch you up just for a moment on on where we are. If if you've got a paper Bible, you can see we're on the very last page of the gospel that's written by Matthew. So this is an event that, that takes place probably about a month after the resurrection. So a month after the crucifixion, a month month after Jesus is buried, a month after Resurrection Sunday and the empty tomb, at this point in time, Jesus has appeared to the disciples when he came and he showed himself behind closed doors. He's showed himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's shown himself to the disciples on the seashore. And we actually find out that he's shown himself at this point in time to about 500 or more witnesses. 500 or more people who knew of Jesus prior to his resurrection and have now seen him since his resurrection. It's likely that this actually, this great commission that we read here in Matthew, takes place on the same day, maybe just moments before Jesus ascends into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. This is the place that Matthew is describing for us. And he tells us that Jesus comes to 11 disciples. Right, These are the men that for the last probably three years have been walking and living, hearing from, interacting with Jesus. This is the first time that Matthew has also called them the 11 disciples in contrast to the 12 that had been with Jesus because at this point in time, Judas, one of the 12, has already betrayed Jesus has already hung himself and has perished. These are the 11 disciples. This is the culmination of three years of them walking with Jesus. Three years where they have given up everything in their life. We are told repeatedly in all of the Gospels that Jesus would go and he would say, come and follow me, and the disciples would leave everything, their businesses, their vocation, their hopes, their dreams, even their families, to go and follow Jesus. They've lived with him, they've watched him, they have grown to love him. And these are also 11 men that quite honestly have recently failed Jesus in his greatest hour of need. These are the men that scattered on the night that Jesus was betrayed. This includes the man that though he was the leader of these disciples, denied that he ever knew Jesus. And then Matthew gives us one more little piece of context that I find so encouraging, honestly. When they saw him, they worshipped, 
but some doubted. They stand face to face with the resurrected Jesus. They stand face to face with the one where they have seen the nail scars in his wrists and feet. This is the one who they watched die and then come back to life. And yet, even as they stand before him, still some doubt. Now here's why this is so comforting to me, because Jesus is about to commission these men with the gospel going out to permeate all the world, with carrying on the story of the redemption of the entire world, and he gives it to those with both bold, invigorated faith and those with fears and doubts. So here's what I want you to hear from the very beginning. Quite honestly, it doesn't matter how you walk into this place today. It doesn't matter how you wake up tomorrow. It doesn't matter how you end your week or begin your week, whether in success or failure, in faith or doubt, in the middle of what you would describe as your best days or flat on your face in the midst of your worst days. This commission is for me and you. Jesus speaks to them. And this is what he says. And when Jesus came, he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we we tend to actually brush past this statement pretty quick because most of you guys, if you've been in the church, knows what comes next. But I want to make a bit of maybe a controversial statement and say this. In all of the 31,000 plus verses in all of Scripture, this may be the most important. Because what Jesus just said when he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given unto me, shorthand for that is, I did it. Everything that this world has been hoping for, I did. Everything that you have been hoping for, everything that you have needed, everything, I did. What the people of God have been waiting for, a Messiah, a King, a Savior, I've done it. All of the big promises, the covenants of God that we find in Scripture find their fulfillment and culmination in this statement. When Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3 in the creation story, when the world is cursed because of their rebellion, God gives one promise that one day a seed of the woman will crush the offspring of Satan, our enemy, and Jesus stands up and he says, I've done it. When God comes to Abraham and he says, I will choose you and out of you I will make a great people and out of that people the entire world will finally be blessed. Jesus stands up and he says, I've done it. When he goes to Moses and he says to the people of Israel, now, You will not be far off from me, but you will be my people, 
and I will be your God. Jesus stands up in this moment and he says, I've done it. When God goes to David and he says, one day an everlasting king will come from your line. A king who will rule and reign with holiness and righteousness and judgment and will always protect the people of God. Jesus stands before the disciples and he says, I've done it. And finally, when God makes the promise of the new covenant, in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, where he says, One day I will put a new heart within you. No longer will you have a heart of stone hardened against me, but a heart of flesh alive to me. I will one day write my law upon you, upon your heart. Your affections will no longer be against me, but for me. Jesus stands before the disciples and he says, I've done it. All authority in heaven. I rule and reign at the right hand of my Father. All authority on this earth, this broken, busted, sin-saturated world that had been under the rule and reign of the enemy of God is no more. It now belongs to me. Jesus says, I've done it. I can't imagine in that moment what must have come flooding into the disciples as they heard Jesus speak that way. I think back to Mark 6 and, and other passages where, where Jesus asked the disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, you can almost imagine with kind of trembling knees because this is, this is either the best thing in the world, or, or, or his hope is futile. He says, you're, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. You're our hope. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. That's exactly who I am. Jesus now looks Peter in the eyes, the one who was so fearful that he had gotten it wrong in the night of Jesus' arrest that he denied he even knew Jesus. And he looks him in the eye in this moment, and he goes, Peter, me I'm the Messiah not the Messiah you're waiting on the Messiah who has come and who has done it now listen we're about to get into the commission the mission the marching orders of Jesus but as the Psalms would say to us when we read this Selah right a Hebrew term that likely means pause stop marvel okay again this, this is not just a place where i give you information this is a place where we are gathering underneath of the presence and the grace and mercy of our god and so i'm going to invite you not 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 theoretically not rhetorically close your eyes selah for a moment stop take a few moments and marvel that all of the things that the world has desperately needed, Jesus says, I have done it. Healing, peace, victory, forgiveness, comfort, love, companionship, 
all the things we've waited for. He's done it. And he's the king. Which means out of worship and obedience to Jesus, whatever he says next, that's what we go and do. Like in some ways, what comes next, it doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't matter if you like it. It doesn't matter if it's easy. It doesn't matter if, if, if we agree with it. Right? One of the, the funniest things that I love when my, my kids is they'll say something to me when, when we'll, Rachel and I will give them uh, uh, you know, instruction or whatever else, and they'll say like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I can do that. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm super glad it makes sense. But what you've just communicated to me is if it didn't make sense, no, no, no thanks. Right? Like that's not authority. That's called, oh, you agree with me. We're on the same page. We're good. And Jesus says, listen, one, I'm the king of kings. And two, if you need any help obeying me, I'm the king of kings that went to a cross for you. The invitation is a kind and gentle one. So what do we do? What do we do for our king that has done it? He says in verse 19, go there for. Now, I, I know our English translation says, go therefore. And, and again, if you've heard this preached before, oftentimes there's a big emphasis on go. But the reasoning of the verse actually is not go therefore, it's actually therefore go. And here's what I mean by that. Our life as Christ followers is grounded and based upon what has already happened, right? It's why we say we are a gospel-centered church. When we communicate that, what we're saying is we, our lives, our body, our mission, our hopes, and our dream is not based on what we might be able to achieve, but what already has occurred through Christ Jesus. Like, you, you've got to get your arms around the fact that that's the logic of the life of all Christ followers. All of life is changed by what Jesus has done and accomplished. Everything we do in worship, all of our obedience, is changed and altered by what has already been done. Or another way to put it is, our lives is a life of response. Right? If you remember back to the days when you were a kiddo and you would go to the, the doctor's office, I don't even know if they still have these, but the, the doctors had this uh, magic wand with like a rubber orange triangle on the end. Right? And they'd sit you up on, on the little uh, table of, uh, of pain and torture, and they would have you hang your knees over, and they would be like, maybe this was just my doctor and he was weird and none of you have this experience, but that's all right, I cherish it. And he would be like, hey, watch this. I can make your leg move, whether you want to or not. And then he would tap you on that spot that would cause like pain all throughout your body, and your leg would flail about. Did this happen for no one other than me? Okay, good. I apparently don't go to my doctor. I think he was a military doctor. Right, he would, he would, he would hit you right in the knee, and your knee would just, it didn't matter what you wanted. 
right? You didn't ask the doctor if you could move your knee. He didn't ask you to move it. It was a response, a reflex. It was inherent. Our lives as Christ followers is a reflex to Jesus saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given unto me. The work is done. The price has been paid. Sin and death has been defeated. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been adopted into the family of God. Therefore, everything has changed. You must become intimately good at connecting the because of Jesus to everything you do. Because I'll tell you, your entire life prior to the salvation of Jesus and for all those that do not know him, their life is based on a logic that is different than ours. Their life is based off of the logic of what I can get, what I can become, what I must do, and ours is based on what he has done. Therefore, go, or, or as it is maybe better translated, therefore, as you go. What's Jesus saying when he tells us to go? What he's saying is that your life is based on what I've done, and what I've done changes your future. Our lives are based on the past of Jesus, but the past of Jesus changes our future. Go changes for the disciples two major truths in their life. One, they've spent their entire life in, in, in a small geographical area in the former nation of Israel, mainly in Galilee, somewhat in Judea, but they have ministered, lived, their vocation, their family, everything revolved around that area. And so Jesus is physically saying to them, the geographic place where you live, where you have called home, is changing. But it's not just the place, it's also the people. If this go signifies anything great, it's what Paul later tells us, is that the gospel has tore down the dividing line of hostility. The people of God is no longer kind of brought and adhered to and secluded to a, an ethnic people or nation. It's now open to any that would call Jesus Lord. And so Jesus says, go. Go leads them out of their place. It leads them out of their people. It leads them out of their past into something different. Or maybe a better way to say it is, the therefore of Jesus compels our future to be utterly, unequivocally, wholly changed. Let me just ask this basically. Has your life been turned upside down by Jesus? And, and I want you to pause, right? Because I know I'm a pastor and you're in a gathering of the church, and so you know the answer, right? Like, none of you are caught off guard if I tell you that the answer to that question was supposed to be yes, right? Like, none of you are like, oh, man, I got that wrong right? Answer the test question wrong. 
But I don't want you to give me the answer that you think is the right answer, nor what I want to hear. I want you to pause for a second. And I want you to take the, the hope of the gospel out of your life for two seconds. One, as I say that, you should shudder. But two, can I ask you uh, just a quick question? Would your finances look drastically different? Would your daily schedule look drastically different? Would your plans for this week or this month or this fall look drastically different? Would the people that you're going to see and interact with today or tomorrow or this week look drastically different? Would the conversations you're going to have with them look drastically different? Because it's not an understatement to say that Jesus proclaiming that all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me changes everything. And the concern for my own life and for this entire church is that Jesus flavors our life rather than remakes it. That G Jesus kind of seasons our life. He, he, he makes our life a little saltier, a little sweeter. He's the cherry on top of our life. But he says, when he says, therefore, go, he's saying, because I died on a cross and resurrected, God in human flesh submitted himself to death, and then through that death, killed off the consequences of sin and death, everything changes. Therefore, go. And what is this big go culminate into? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus sums up this new life the response of the Christ follower to the gospel in one direct and simple way. Go and make disciples. Or actually, if, if I'm being honest, based on the context, it is be a disciple that makes disciples. Matthew takes great care to tell us that Jesus is giving this commission to who? Disciples. So he, he doesn't say, be a convert and make disciples. He doesn't say, don't really worry what you're doing or if you're following me, go recruit people to follow me. He says, be a disciple that makes disciples. Let me give you just a simple definition of disciple because if you've been in the church, you've heard the word a million times and it's used to describe programs and processes. It's used to describe people or certain types of people in the church and some people in the church, but not others. Disciple at its core means to be a follower or a learner. And the answer to the question, can you be a Christ follower and not a disciple, is no. It is one and the same. Now, if you're saying to me, wait a minute, I'm concerned I'm not a disciple, then we've got to go back to square one and say, have you met our king and do you know what he's done? 
The, the point of being a disciple, and this is not a disciple of Jesus, but just historically, in this time when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, a disciple was one that emulated a master, that followed and emulated in order to become like a master. Now, I need you to hear this. This does not mean simply mimicking or acting like or pretending to be the master. Right? I, I, one of my favorite memories when uh, Noah, our oldest, was young is I would come home. I, I worked for uh, a job then that required me to be less tattooed and uh, to wear a tie. Just put it that way. And so I would come home from work, and, and, and maybe once a week I would find my almost two-year-old in one of my dress shirts with a tie draped around his neck, just kind of waddling around the house. And so, you know, I'd interact with him, and I'd say, what are you doing, buddy? And he said, you know, he'd say something like, I'm dad. Now, it was really cute. Um, but what I didn't say, but what I thought was, uh, no, you're not. Just wearing the clothes, buddy. Okay? I, I didn't say, you have no idea what it's like to be a father. Mainly because he was two and he was cute. But nonetheless, that's not discipleship. Right? Just acting like Jesus is not discipleship. Looking like Jesus is not enough for discipleship. Discipleship is the process of being immersed in the life of the disciple maker, the master, and being so immersed that you begin to look like him because you are becoming like him. A, a, a sister church of ours out in, in Washington, I love their definition of discipleship. It is being with Jesus becoming like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus did. Most of us skip right to the end. What's discipleship? We do the things that Jesus did. We, we, we speak the language of Jesus, and we do the things that Jesus did, and don't do the things that Jesus didn't do. But that's, that's just the fruit. That's the outflow. That's the end. It begins with being with, and by being with, becoming like, and by becoming like, finally doing the things that Jesus did. Let me just quickly to be a disciple is to be on a journey. It is a process, a daily living out. I got married on December 30th of 2007. Is that right? All right, I got a thumbs up for my bride. I get to end this sermon and go home. I became a husband on that day. I became a husband and yet knew nothing about being a husband. Being a husband to Rachel did not end on December 30th of 2017. It began. And every day I grow by God's grace in learning how to be a husband to my bride. Every day I wake up as her husband again and again. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is. And it is to be on that journey and be transformed. We expect change from the inside out for all those that are disciples. And so, expecting change, you should expect it to be disorienting. 
You should expect it to be strange feeling, awkward, like me trying to play golf. Right? I, I played baseball all growing up, and I showed up for the first time to, to play golf, and I swung the club like a baseball bat, and it just didn't go well. And so I had a, a guy that, that kind of knew how to play, and so he was like, do this with your arm, and this with your arm, and this with your arm, and stand this way. And by the end of it, I just, I look like Charles Barkley, if you've ever seen him swing a golf club. If not, Google it later. It's awkward. But that's a part of the process. Because we're being transformed into what we were previously not. So how do we be a disciple of Jesus? And how do we make disciples of Jesus? And he tells us. We're going to do this briefly today because we're going to spend the next three days breaking this down. What it means to be a disciple and how to make disciples. But I'm going to briefly introduce how we describe it through the perfect words of our Savior. How do we be disciples who make disciples? Three things. Knowing Christ, believing the gospel, and loving people. Let's quickly go through it. Jesus gives us two basic commands in making disciples. Go therefore, make disciples. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But in his first command to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's really two separate things that he's telling us to do, two components. The first is, is, is encapsulated in the phrase, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, right here, if you've ever heard someone say to you, Jesus did not claim to be God, you can call them a liar, graciously, winsomely, with the hope of drawing them in, okay, with this passage. Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, God the Father, God the Spirit, and me, God the Son. Right, and here, here's why this is important, because Jesus is first telling us, in order to make disciples, you have to know me. You have to know who I actually am, that I'm not just a teacher, that I'm not just wise, that I'm not a good guy, that I'm not a part of the Godhead, that I am fully God in flesh who has come to do what only God could do, reversing the curse that we have brought upon ourselves and this world through sin. To be disciples of Jesus is to know Him. First, to know about Him, which is what I just described. Right? This is why we study Scripture, to have right and correct orthodoxy or doctrine, to know who Jesus actually said He was, that He was the Messiah, that what He accomplished really was enough, that we appropriate it, that we bring it in really only by faith. Right doctrine, right truth, right orthodoxy is important. We must first know about Jesus. And then the second piece is we must actually know him. And if you guys have been here long enough, you know that I've said that that word is an important and incredibly intimate word. Knowing in Scripture is oftentimes used to describe how a 
wedding and marriage is consummated. The epitome of marriage is that a man knows his wife. To know Christ is not what a biographer does. It is not what a historian does. It is not what a scholar does. It's what a lover does. And I get it. Some of you guys are raised in churches where I start talking like that and you're like, ooh, this feels awkward. Remember what I said about discipleship? Embrace the awkward. But the call to be a disciple is to know Jesus. I love the show that's out right now, The the Chosen. And I love it primarily because of the myriad of interactions between those that play the disciples and the man that plays Jesus. You get to see the, the disciples living with Jesus, constantly coming to him with just ridiculous questions. Coming to him for guidance, coming to him with doubts. Jesus is who they go to when they fail, when they fear. They're constantly again and again in the face of Jesus. That's what it means to know Jesus and to be a disciple of Jesus. You must be face to face with him at all times. We are and we belong to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are called to know Christ intimately, to know God and God in human flesh, Christ Jesus. But what are we to do in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? We are to baptize and be baptized. It says baptize in the name, but the the original word's actually to so, so the best probably translation is to be baptized into, right? which gives you a, a, better, a better kind of picture of what's going on here. This, the, the, the Greek word is baptizo, which literally means to immerse or submerse. Right? This is a, a weird, crazy story, but it, it just was a great word picture. So one of the first and earliest uses that we have in antiquity of this word baptizo is in, from 200 B.C., And it was from a doctor and pharmacist who was giving a recipe for pickling. But he uses the word twice. First, when you blanch the vegetable into or submerge for a moment into boiling water, you baptize it. And then again, when you baptize it and keep it in the vinegar that actually transforms it. And here's why this is important, because most of us think of baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the one-time baptism that we have into water, which is true and right and is us being baptized, submerged, immersed into the name and relationship of the Lord into the church. It's the symbol that we decry those things, but we are baptized for a lifetime. You are still baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you followed my metaphor, you are being pickled absolutely and actively right now. Transformed into, I know this is the weirdest discipleship sermon you've ever heard. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what does that mean? Baptism means you are no longer the old you, but you are the new you. Baptism means that you were once dead, now you're alive. You were once guilty of your sins, now you've been declared righteous. That you were once opposed to God, but now you are towards and for Him and loved by Him. You were once helpless and alone, but now you are empowered by the Spirit of Christ Jesus that resides in you. 
You once foolishly thought that you were sufficient, and now you gloriously hold on to your dependence like a child to your heavenly Father. You once believed that you needed to work out your future, but now you realize that your future has been secured by you. Believing the gospel means every day trying to figure out whether or not those things are actually true in your life. Because moment by moment, I doubt those things. Every time I try and earn the Lord's favor, or earn somebody else's favor, or I fret over my future, or I worry that my failures will stain me permanently, that I've broken things too far, that I'm simply not enough, that His design is not good, I doubt the gospel and need to be reminded of it. Jesus says, go, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go. You yourself know me, Christ Jesus. Teach others to know me and believe what has happened through my death, burial, and resurrection. And then finally, love people. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if you have uh, some legalist at heart, which don't worry, you all do. You read that, and there's a little bit of like, ooh, all. That's, that's a lot, right? No, once again, only me. That's fantastic. All is a lot, Jesus. Can, how about we start with one, right? And teaching them to observe one thing that I commanded you. I feel better about that. But here's the beauty All of the laws of Jesus, he himself tells us, can be boiled down into one great two-part commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love others as yourself. The law of Christ is simple and yet pervasive and vast. The law of Christ is the law of love. It's to realize that you've already been so loved that you give your life away to love. This is what Jesus calls us into. To bear our cross daily, to lose our life in order to gain it. This is as much about submission as it is about obedience. Realizing that we lay our lives down for the hope of others, for the joy of others in order to love others. This is the great commandment. This is the mission of the church. And the best thing yet is the way that Jesus ends it. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How can we do this, Jesus Why should we do this, Jesus? And he tells us, because I'm with you, and I always will be. You will experience Jesus and his presence in a unique way on this side of eternity as you become a disciple and you lead others to follow Jesus. Like I I need you to hear that. You want to have FOMO? Here's the one piece of FOMO I'll let you have. If you don't know what that is, I will explain it to you because I'm very cool. And I read this, I think, on Wikipedia. Fear of missing out. 
like, here's the only FOMO you need to have, is right now, there are ways that you get to experience Jesus that once he comes back, you won't. And one of them is by faith, walking with him as he heals and restores, redeems, saves, and conforms others into his glorious, gracious image. You want to know him? Be a disciple that makes disciples. You want to experience his power and authority? Then be a disciple who makes disciples. You want to be reignited with the fire that you once had when you first came to know and love Jesus? Then watch him do it again in the lives of others and do it again in your own life. Church, I'm going to leave you with two big questions. And they are, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you living in light of his victory? Do you know that he actually has done it? Is your life being reoriented around him? Do you love him and are learning to love him more? Do you know him and are learning to know him more? Do you believe the gospel in your life and has your life been sent out into the harvest to love others? Are you a disciple? And if so, has your discipleship, your love, your worship for him overflowed onto others? Right? The culmination of love, the culmination of joy, the culmination of any great experience is to share it with others. And this is the commission of the church. To be so enthralled by Jesus that we have no other joy greater than to share our King with a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray.